Chapter Six of Mental Efficiency. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Mental Efficiency and Other Hints to Men and Women by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Six Books. The Physical Side. The chief interest of many of my readers is avowedly books. They may, they probably do, profess other interests, but they are primarily bookmen. And when one is a bookman, one is a bookman during about twenty-three and three-quarter hours in every day. Now, bookmen are capable of understanding things about books which cannot be put into words. They are not like mere subscribers to circulating libraries. For them, a book is not just a book. It is a book. If these lines should happen to catch the eye of any persons not bookmen, such persons may imagine that I am writing nonsense, but I trust that the bookmen will comprehend me. And I venture then to offer a few reflections upon an aspect of modern bookishness that is becoming more and more actual. As the enterprise of publishers and the beneficent effects of education grow and increase together, I refer to popular editions of classics. Now I am very grateful to the devisers of cheap and handy editions. The first book I ever bought was the first volume of the first modern series of presentable and really cheap reprints. Namely, Macaulay's Warren Hastings in Castle's National Library, sixpence in cloth. That foundation stone of my library has unfortunately disappeared beneath the successive deposits, but another volume of the same series, F. T. Polgrave's Visions of England, an otherwise scarce book, still remains to me through the vicissitudes of seventeen years of sale, purchase, and exchange. And I would not care to part with it. I have over two hundred volumes of that inestimable and incomparable series, the Temple Classics, besides several hundred assorted volumes of various other series. And when I heard of the new Everyman's Library projected by that benefactor of bookmen, Mister J. M. Dent, my first impassioned act was to sit down and write a postcard to my bookseller. Ordering George Finley's *The Byzantine Empire*, a work which has waited sixty years for popular recognition, so that I cannot be said to be really antagonistic to cheap reprints. Strong in this consciousness, I beg to state that cheap and handy reprints are all very well in their way. Which is a manner of saying that they are not the alpha and omega of bookishness. By expending twenty pounds yearly during the next five years, a man might collect in cheap and handy reprints all that was worth having in classic English literature. But I, for one, would not be willing to regard such a library as a real library. I would regard it as only a cheap edition of a library. There would be something about it that would arouse in me a certain benevolent disdain, even though every volume was well printed on good paper and inoffensively bound. 
Why? Well, although it is my profession in life to say what I feel in plain words, I do not know that in this connection I can say what I feel in plain words. I have to rely on a sympathetic comprehension of my attitude in the bookish breasts of my readers. In the first place, I have an instinctive antipathy to a series. I do not want the golden legend and the essays of Eliah uniformed alike in a regiment of books. It makes me think of conscription and barracks. Even the noblest series of reprints ever planned, not at all cheap either, nor heterogeneous in matter, the Tudor translations, faintly annoys me in the mass. Its appearances in a series seems to me to rob a book of something very delicate and subtle in the aroma of its individuality, something which, it being inexplicable, I will not try to explain. In the second place, most cheap and handy reprints are small in size. They may be typographically excellent, with large type and opaque paper. They may be convenient to handle. They may be surpassingly suitable for the pocket, and the very thing for travel. They may save precious space where shelf-room is limited. But they are small in size. And there is, as regards most literature, a distinct moral value in size. Do I carry my audience with me? I hope so. Let Paradise Lost be so produced that you can put it in your waistcoat pocket, and it is no more Paradise Lost. Milton needs a solid octavo form, with stoutish paper and long primer type. I have Walpole's letters in Nunes's thin paper classics, a marvellous volume of near nine hundred pages, with a portrait and a good index and a beautiful binding, for three and six, and I am exceedingly indebted to Messrs. Nunes for creating that volume. It was sheer genius on their part to do so. I get charming sensations from it, but sensations not so charming as I should get from Mrs. Paget Toynbee's many-volumed and grandiose edition. Even aside from Mrs. Toynbee's erudite notes and the extra letters which she has been able to print. The same letter in Mrs. Toynbee's edition would have a higher aesthetic and moral value for me than in the editionlate of Messrs. Nunes. The one cheap series which satisfies my desire for size is Macmillan's Library of English Classics, in which I have the travels of that mythical personage, Sir John Mandeville but it is only in paying for it that you know this edition to be cheap, for it measures nine inches by six inches by two inches. And in the third place, when one buys series, one only partially chooses one's books. They are mainly chosen for one by the publisher. And even if they are not chosen for one by the publisher, they are suggested to one by the publisher. Not so does the genuine bookman form his library. The genuine bookman begins by having specific desires. His study of authorities gives him a demand, and the demand forces him to find the supply. He does not let the supply create the demand. 
such a state of affairs would be almost humiliating, almost like the parvenu who calls in the wholesale furnisher and decorator to provide him with a home. A library must be, primarily, the expression of the owner's personality. Let me assert again that I am strongly in favour of cheap series of reprints. Their influence, though not the very finest, is indisputably good. They are as great a boon as cheap bread. They are indispensable where money or space is limited, and in travelling. They decidedly help to educate a taste for books that are neither cheap nor handy, and the most luxurious collectors may not afford to ignore them entirely. But they have their limitations, their disadvantages. They cannot form the backbone of a proper library. They make, however, admirable embroidery to a library. My own would look rather plain if it was stripped of them. THE PHILOSOPHY OF BOOK-BUYING For some considerable time I have been living, as regards books, with the minimum of comfort and decency, with, in fact, the bare necessaries of life, such necessaries being, in my case, sundry dictionaries, Boswell, an atlas, Wordsworth, an encyclopaedia, Shakespeare, Whittaker, some de Maupassant, a poetical anthology, Verlaine, Baudelaire, a natural history of my native county, an old directory of my native town, Sir Thomas Brown, Poe, Walpole's letters, and a book of memoirs that I will not name. A curious list, you will say. Well, never mind. We do not all care to eat beefsteak and chip potatoes off an oak table, with a foaming quart to the right hand. We have our idiosyncrasies. The point is that I existed on the bare necessaries of life—very healthy, doctors say—for a long time, and then, just lately, I summoned energy and caused fifteen hundred volumes to be transported to me, and I arranged them on shelves, and I rearranged them on shelves, and I left them to arrange themselves on shelves. Well, you know— the way that I walk up and down in front of these volumes, whose faces I had half forgotten, is perfectly infantile. It is like the way of a child at a menagerie. There, in its cage, is that 1839 edition of Shelley, edited by Mrs. Shelley, that I once nearly sold to the British Museum, because the keeper of printed books thought he hadn't got a copy, only he had. And there in a cage by himself, because of his terrible hugeness, is the 1652 Paris edition of Montaigne's Essays. And so I might continue, and so I would continue, were it not essential that I come to my argument. Do you suppose that the presence of these books, after our long separation, is making me read more than I did? Do you suppose I am engaged in looking up my favourite passages? Not a bit. The other evening I had a long tram journey, and before starting I tried to select a book to take with me. I couldn't find one to suit just the tram mood. As I had to catch the tram, I was obliged to settle on something, 
and in the end I went off with nothing more original than Hamlet, which I am really too familiar with. Then I bought an evening paper, and read it all through, including advertisements. So I said to myself, this is a nice result of all my trouble to resume company with some of my books. However, as I have long since ceased to be surprised at the eccentric manner in which human nature refuses to act as one would have expected it to act, I was able to keep calm and unashamed during this extraordinary experience. And I am still walking up and down in front of my books, and enjoying them without reading them. I wish to argue that a great deal of cant is talked and written about reading. Papers such as the Athenaeum, which nevertheless I peruse with joy from end to end every week, can scarcely notice a new edition of a classic without expressing in a grieved and pessimistic tone the fear that more people buy these agreeable editions than read them. And if it is so, what then? Are we only to buy the books that we read? The question has merely to be thus bluntly put, and it answers itself. All impassioned bookmen, except a few who devote their whole lives to reading, have rows of books on their shelves which they have never read, and which they never will read. I know that I have hundreds such. My eye rests on the works of Berkeley in three volumes, with a preface by the Right Honourable Arthur James Balfour. I cannot conceive the circumstances under which I shall ever read Berkeley, but I do not regret having bought him in a good edition, and I would buy him again if I had him not, for when I look at him some of his virtue passes into me. I am the better for him. A certain aroma of philosophy informs my soul, and I am less crude than I should otherwise be. This is not fancy, but fact. Taking Berkeley simply as an instance, I will utilise him a little further. I ought to have read Berkeley, you say, just as I ought to have read Spencer, Ben Jonson, George Eliot, Victor Hugo. Not at all. There is no ought about it. If the mass of obtainable first-class literature were, as it was perhaps a century ago, not too large to be assimilated by a man of ordinary limited leisure in his leisure, and during the first half of his life, then possibly there might be an ought about it. But the mass has grown unmanageable, even by those robust professional readers who can grapple with whole libraries. And I am not a professional reader. I am a writer, just as I might be a hotel-keeper, a solicitor, a doctor, a grocer, or an earthenware manufacturer. I read in my scanty spare time, and I don't read in all my spare time either. I have other distractions. I read what I feel inclined to read, and I am conscious of no duty to finish a book that I don't care to finish. I read in my leisure, not from a sense of duty, not to improve myself, but solely because it gives me pleasure to read. Sometimes it takes me a month to get through one book. I expect my case is quite an average case, 
but am I going to fetter my buying to my reading? Not exactly. I want to have lots of books on my shelves because I know they are good, because I know they would amuse me, because I like to look at them, and because one day I might have a caprice to read them. Barclay, even thy turn may come. In short, I want them because I want them. And shall I be deterred from possessing them by the fear of some sequestered and singular person, some person who has read vastly, but who doesn't know the difference between a J.S. Muria cigar and an R.P. Muria, strolling in and bullying me with the dreadful query, Sir, do you read your book? Therefore I say, in buying a book, be influenced by two considerations only. Are you reasonably sure that it is a good book? Have you a desire to possess it? Do not be influenced by the probability or the improbability of your reading it. After all, one does read a certain proportion of what one buys, and further, instinct counts. The man who spends half a crown on Stubbs's early plantagenets, instead of going into the gaiety pit to see the spring chicken, will probably be the sort of man who can suck goodness out of Stubbs's early plantagenets years before he bestirs himself to read it. End of chapter 6